0: Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Vox Tablet, the weekly podcast of Tablet Magazine. It's me, your host, Sarah Ivory. Today, the impact of exile on a family from Cairo. Lucette Lagnato's first memoir was called The Man in the White Sharkskin Suit. It told the story of her family's life in Cairo, a thriving multi-ethnic metropolis in the 1940s and 50s. That metropolis was shaken upside down in 1952 with the Egyptian Revolution, and that revolution led to the mass exodus of Jews throughout the 50s and 60s. Lanyado's family was part of that exodus. Their departure took its toll on everyone in the family, and it had a particular impact on her father. It's his transformation from a successful debonair man about town to a broken, struggling immigrant that is at the heart of that first memoir. Now Lanyado's written a second memoir. This one takes us into the present time, And more importantly, it offers a loving and devastating portrait of her mother and all that her mother sacrificed to keep her family intact, both in Egypt and here in the United States. This new memoir is called The Arrogant Years, One Girl's Search for Her Lost Youth from Cairo to Brooklyn. It's just out this month, and we're truly delighted to have Lañado with us here in the studio to talk about it. Lucette Lañado, welcome. I'm so delighted to be here. Lucette, before we start speaking about your mother, I want to speak about your father who loomed much larger in your early childhood than your mother did. For people who haven't read The Man in the White Sharkskin Suit, describe for us, please, his personality and your relationship to him as a child.
1: My dad was indeed a larger-than-life figure. In fact, that was the challenge of the second book, of making my mother as compelling as he was. But to tell you a little bit about him, I described him as a boulevardier, this tall, very striking uh, gentleman, well over six feet, who was always seen uh, in his signature white suits. And he, I think of him as not simply walking the streets of Cairo, but owning them, uh, going from his business dealings to the cafes and cabarets and casinos that were part of Cairo's once amazingly thriving nightlife.
0: But as you make clear in both memoirs, he lost his way when he left Egypt, when he came to the United States. He didn't ever seem to really gain footing here, and he became increasingly reclusive. Your mother, on the other hand, was much better able to make the adjustment, although she also seemed to have suffered tremendously. And it seems like the first blow for her was not so much the move to the United States, but actually her marriage to your father in the first place. Tell us who your mother was before she got married during that period that you referred to as the, quote, arrogant years.
1: Yes, again, the the sort of challenge of this new book was to make my mother as vivid a character as my father, which I actually believe she was in, in every way. She was very different. Uh, my father was outgoing. Uh, my mother was shy, quiet, a, a, a teacher, a librarian, bookish. My father had never read a book. Uh, so it was a, a kind of a classic you know, what the French call a mesalliance, a a bad match of two people coming together. He was also 20 years older than her. But she had really, um, before her marriage, she had really come into her own in this spectacular way in a culture where women really didn't go to school much beyond, you know, the age of 12. And, you know, they went on to, um, you know, marry a few years later, maybe they took little jobs as sales girls or whatever. My mother was very different. She actually um, studied. She read voraciously. She became um, and that's a central sort of uh, a subtext of the book. She became um, uh, the protege of this amazing woman uh, the wife of a Jewish pasha. Uh, I My mother was completely enthralled by the pasha's wife. And most of my childhood was spent, you know, hearing stories about this amazing woman who took my mother under her arm, made her create a library. So you have this amazing kind of, uh, you know, working woman in 19, late 1930s, early 1940s Cairo. Um, uh, My mother is building this great library. My mother is doing very well as a teacher. And then the minute, basically, that she becomes engaged to my dad, it's all over because a woman cannot work. Once she's married, it would be humiliating to the man. And my mother would spend her life mourning that, mourning the loss of her position. So flash forward to America. Yes, I agree with you. She did a better job. I mean, the whole The whole theme of my first book was sort of what I called the American dream in reverse. You think that immigrants come to this country and they sort of, yes, they struggle in the beginning, but eventually they reach the top. They achieve their their dreams, Um, prosperity. For my parents, I actually saw the reverse scenario, that they come to America and they sort of go further and further. They sink downwards and downwards and fall apart. I mean, it's a sort of very sad ending. With my mother, it was a little better. She adapted perhaps a bit better. You know, she ultimately went to work, defied my dad, because, you know, in America, women do that. They work, they have careers. It was the 60s, the 70s. But ultimately, I think she was defeated by this culture, too the coldness of it, the fact that family stopped, had stopped being central by the time, you know, we reached this country. I don't need to tell you, I mean, America's not really a family-centric culture. And Cairo, especially Jewish Cairo, really was. And they, uh, it's sort of a faith-based culture. They really missed that. You know, we love to say, ah, we're in a secular society. But you know what? You pay a price.
0: I want to just go back for a moment sure. though, to talk about your mom. Uh, you describe in the book very poignantly the feelings that her own mother, your grandmother, had when she became engaged to your father. Your grandmother felt this was a wonderful uh, triumph and that everything would be good now. Her, the luck would change for the family because they, had been, they hadn't been so fortunate in different ways. I wonder how did your mother feel upon her engagement? Was she equally elated by this or did she see it as something that would sort of constrict her?
1: I think that uh, again, in a culture where marriage was seen as the absolute necessity for a young woman, um, uh, ultimately, you know, my mother had, you know, was a part of her of her culture. I think she was enthralled by my dad at first. You know, this he was very sort of handsome, charming man. Uh, he was a womanizer, and womanizers are good at charming women. You know, can't underestimate that, and. Um, you know, my own maternal grandmother, I, I she's a very, uh, to me, compelling figure in my life and in the book, though I never knew her. Um, Alexandra of Alexandria was herself different. I mean, she was an intellectual, very literary. And even though the family didn't have a, a dime, my mom's family, they this is what they had. They had books. And um, so, yes, my mother was, was very excited, but I think the harsh realization came very quickly, she moved in with my father to an apartment to a house they shared with my father 's mother, this uh, old Syrian woman who was completely different than uh, you know my mother 's side of the family. Uh, my Syrian grandmother, Zarifa, was a wizard in the kitchen i 'm sure she was a very good woman, but she didn 't have much use for books. Or, uh, you know, the life of the mind. She wanted my mother to cook well and to be a good housewife. And my mother found herself at the age of 20, uh, you know, suddenly in this house where she was deeply uncomfortable. And she was completely trapped because, you know what, there was no way out. There was no way out for a woman.
0: You describe your mother as fiercely determined to see her children and maybe especially to see her daughters cultivate their intellects and apply those intellects in the world. Where did this come from, this love of learning and this determination in uh, favor of her children?
1: I I think that um, my mother had such an intellectual upbringing, I know it sounds very strange, Cairo of the 1930s and 40s was actually a very interesting and liberal society where Jews did very well. They, the world has forgotten, both the Western world and the Arab world, I'm afraid, has forgotten that once upon a time Jews and Muslims and Christians lived you know, in a considerable degree of harmony and there was sort of some semblance, some beginnings of democracy nice to remember that now as we've all lived through this sort of revolution non-revolution in egypt the last several months my mother um my mother found herself in this marriage where she had to have children and she did and she had to become a housewife and she had to put aside all that she had valued as the protége of the pasha's wife so it's odd we had i guess i had a strange strange upbringing she never let me do any household chores. You know, even American girls, you know, my friends in school coming here in the 1960s and 70s, you know, they had their jobs to do. Their moms made them make the beds and wash the dishes and all that. Learn to cook, not me. I did nothing. I did nothing in the house, literally. Literally. Uh, She'd say to me, Lulu, sort of concentrate on your studies. She preferred to see me reading, Um, which I guess was wonderful in a way, except now I've found uh, more and more, I must say, uh, as I miss her so desperately, um, I have found myself longing for the food of my childhood and, um, and unable to reproduce it and unable to find it anywhere, no matter where I go.
0: Alongside, though, this uh, determination, your mother also possessed an incredibly fatalistic side. Is that right?
1: Yeah. I mean, remember that at the core of the sort of the Levantine life was this, you know, sort of major sense of superstition. You believed in good luck and bad luck. You believed in good omens and the evil eye especially the evil eye. And there was a sense on my mother's side, more than on my father's side, oddly, that the family was in some ways jinxed, that the evil eye had hovered upon us, that, you know, my grandmother had been unlucky, my mother had been unlucky. So she was always afraid. It didn't help that there were always these sort of calamities, including the fact that I got sick first as a child And then as a young, as a young girl. So um, there was a sort of kind of brooding pessimism, um, which was maybe um, balanced a bit by her own natural, you know, you know, she was a witty person. She was a person whose great uh, claim to fame was that she had read all, all of Marcel Proust by the time she was 15.
0: Wow. Are you yourself
1: superstitious? Terribly, completely, utterly, yes, absolutely, can't, can't get rid of that side of me, no matter how Americanized I become or I became. Left. I totally believe in the evil eye. Do you? Yeah, I'm afraid I do. Yeah.
0: Well, I'm wearing a little evil eye amulet myself, Good. so I guess I, I do too. I do. hope
1: it protects. You. Oops, so we awesome. need all the help we can get.
0: Your family left Egypt reluctantly in 1963. You left when you were six. You arrived in Brooklyn in the neighborhood of Bensonhurst when you were seven. And it seems like from the book you fit in reasonably well with a community of Jews there from Syria, from Egypt, from Morocco, and from other countries in North Africa and in the Middle East. Will you describe that world a little bit for us, the world that centered around the Shield of David Synagogue out there in Bensonhurst?
1: Yeah, how beautifully you summarize it. I'm actually very touched Um, It was – it's odd. We were in America, but we really weren't in America because my world for years as a little girl here uh, was centered around this little shawl um, in Bensonhurst and about what I call a swath of about 10 blocks, maybe not even that – where, you know, we all had sort of ended up. Remember, there was a massive exodus of Jews from the Arab countries. Um, It's a story the world really doesn't know. Um, I've always felt very pained about that. There were, you know, nearly a million refugees and uh, who sort of had to leave um, and, and had to give up homes and families were broken. And nobody's really mourned, Nobody's really more in that world. So in a way, I think of my two books as sort of elegies to these worlds and to the fact that nobody has ever said, gee, isn't it sad that a Jewish community in Cairo of 80,000 was completely destroyed and is no more? Um, and ditto for Algeria, Morocco, Tunisia, on and on and on and on. And anyway, here I am in Brooklyn, and I go to shul every Saturday morning, very dutifully, hand in hand with my mom, and we sit in a women's section. And this women's section, um, which was so central to me, my early years returned to um, become my obsession once again recently. Because I kept thinking about the women's section of The Shield of Young David, this really kind of cozy place where everybody was sort of like you and kind of loving in a way that the rest of America really wasn't. And they kind of embraced you and kind of tolerated you and let you in. And I'd sit behind the divider with my mom every Saturday morning and pray, except I wasn't really praying. I was looking out beyond the barrier at the men in the sanctuary. And the little girl, me, Lulu, as I was called, it was my name, my identity. It's almost like a separate person now. So Lulu watches and she's both very at ease. I'm very at ease in that world. And yet there's a piece of me that's becoming more and more Americanized. And what's happening in America, it's the 1960s. Women are breaking out. They are breaking down barriers. So, Lulu thinks she doesn't want to be in the women's section. She wants to be with the men. She wants to pray with them. She wants to be a part of them. She wants to have the fun that she imagines they're having. And so, there's a sort of like tug between the outside world, which is sort of luring her away, and this amazingly, and I mean, really amazingly embracing sort of incredibly safe little world that they find after Egypt.
0: Although you yourself were sort of trying to uh, bring down the Mechitsa and move into the men's <laughs> section, I mean, the truth is it was a very cohesive community. And, and nevertheless, your mother found herself unable to keep her kids within it with the exception of one of your brothers. How do you understand that, that you and your sister and, and another brother actually all basically left that community?
1: I, I really, I, I'm going to use a very stark word, but there's no point in sort of pussy fitting around here. I, I really think it was the tragedy of America, a tragedy that Americans themselves are beginning to realize more and more. You know, you have a society here where what is it that parents prize, especially upwardly mobile? They want – they accept the fact that their kids will move away, go away. They'll get into great colleges. They'll have lives of their own. They'll become independent. That's what you get from a typical American family. What happens, though, is unfortunately, ultimately, the kids do do go away. Uh, In many cases, they live hundreds, if not thousands of miles from their parents. And as their parents grow old, well, then, you know, you begin to see the consequences, you know, of families that only get together once or twice a year. My world was originally not like that, but I was very, I and my sister and my youngest brother were very drawn, were very drawn. It was, there was this very potent lure. I didn't want to go to, I remember, to Brooklyn College, poor Brooklyn College, and I think it's really a very good school with a terrific campus. I wanted to go away. I wanted to, you know, be, you know, whatever an American girl can be. And um, and I left. And by the time I came back, it was too late.
0: When you were 16, your arrogant years hit a terrible roadblock. And we should just say that the arrogant years refer to that kind of time in a girl's teenagehood when she really feels confident that the world is before her and doesn't feel hemmed in or that, or broken. Uh Anyway, at that point in your arrogant years, as you call them, you learned that you had Hodgkin's disease, which is a cancer of the lymph nodes. And you suddenly were undergoing a 10-month period of intensive uh, radiation treatments for cancer. Talk to us a little bit about the impact of that on your psyche.
1: It was incredibly devastating. I... You know, people, again, we love these terms. You know, I think of them as so outrageously cliched and untrue, you know, that you'll get over a trauma, that you'll achieve closure, that you'll move on. And so, help me God, I don't think I've ever moved on from, you know, the spring and summer of my 16th year when I had Hodgkin's. Um My world was completely shattered, and a sort of a premise of this book, and by the way, I better give credit for the Arrogant Years title to F. Scott Fitzgerald. I read Tender as a Night," believe it or not, as a freshman in college, uh, a few months after I emerged from this horrible illness, and I was very struck by a line in there where he describes his heroine, Nicole, who had been institutionalized and whatever. He says, you know, she had lost the great... Arrogant years in the life of a pretty girl. So even then, 17, I knew. I knew that in some horrible sense, it was over. I mean, really over. That's the way I felt. The illness had cost me my ability to thrive, even to compete vis a vis other women, you know, in the romantic world, in the dating world, whatever. It was sort of this like shattering, shattering um, event. Uh, that I would really spend uh, the following years, you know, trying to get over. It was incredibly—what was sad is that I didn't see how awful it was for my parents, too. They, you know, imagine they're immigrants. We don't have a dime. We're on Medicaid. And they don't know what to do. They have their—you know, my mother, I'm the youngest— she had spent years cultivating me. You know, I was going to go to private school. I was going to have this shining, dazzling career future that was going to be in no way like hers. And then suddenly sort of like being hit by a sledgehammer. And so um, The arrogant Years, my book, is a way to explore this phenomenon that doctors uh, left to call sequela, the aftermath, except they 're always talking about physical sequela when you have cancer god forbid you'll you 'll you know develop this, you could develop that on and, on and on and on and on and on. I wanted to explore the psychological sequela, sort of what happens to a young girl who has this kind of event
0: but in the book, actually, one of the uh, sequela, one of the after effects that you explore really uh... Uh, profoundly, is the effect on your mother. It seems like she, in some ways, never recovered from your illness.
1: Right. I think that's actually very, very insightful. And again, my great pain and my great regret is that I didn't see that. I didn't see... I was so sort of caught up in my own pain that I didn't see how completely, you know, wounded she was by, you know, quote, unquote, what had happened to Lulu. It was... This is how traumatic it was. They rarely even said the word, my parents, my mother, Hodgkin's disease, in my house. It was They always used a kind of a euphemism in French. They would talk about tamalaji, your illness. They didn't say Hodgkin's.
0: What's really very striking in in the book is this close bond that you share with your mother and the close bond that your mother shared with her mother back in Egypt. I mean, these bonds are so close, they almost – to a reader can seem suffocating. Uh, In both cases, the mothers cling to their daughters as companions and as bridges to uh, the future, to the outside world, but also the daughters are these vessels for the mother's failed aspirations. That seems like a really tremendous burden to bear, but the way you tell it, it doesn't seem like a burden. You don't seem at all bitter for having to kind of carry this load.
1: Oh, because I didn't see it as a burden. I mean, it's very interesting that that you see it as that. I mean, you see it very clearly. There were these amazing passionate bonds. That's what emerged the most from working on this book, uh, interviewing uh, people, relatives, who had known uh, my mother and Alexandra, her mother, at the time. And the recurring image is of the two of them, walking through the streets arm in arm, inseparable, never able to let go of each other. And then flash forward uh, to me and my mom. She holds me by the hand here in America. She won't let me go. Um, You know, what can I say? Um, Isn't this book My way of expressing how much I miss her at some level when I realized what was most important to me, what kind of book I wanted to write. And in fact, I sometimes think, bizarrely, I guess, that I almost had to write the book about my father to be able to do the book about my mom. Why? Why? I think writing about my mom was excruciatingly painful in a way that, and emotional, in a way that writing about my dad, the jaunty boulevardier, the womanizer, wasn't, I could do that almost clinically. Ah, he had affairs. Okay, back to the drawing board, you know, right, 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 right. with my mother, my God, there were chapters that took months, months. There was just, I would find myself crying and Again, that was very unusual, and yet I knew that if the book, you know, um, God willing, see how superstitious I am, (laughs) was going to work, that I had to really restrain my emotion. I had to be, um, I, I have to admit, the Wall Street Journal reporter I had been trained to be for, you know, well over a decade, you know, you have to be clinical, impartial, you know, always at a remove, always at a distance.
0: Lucette Lañado, thank you so much for speaking with us.
1: Thank you so much. It's been a lovely morning.
0: Lucette Lagnado is the author of a new memoir. It's called The Arrogant Years, One Girl's Search for Her Lost Youth from Cairo to Brooklyn. It's just out from Echo. We have more on the memoir and on the Jews of Cairo on our website, tabletmag.com. While you're there, check out Tablet's fresh new look. We've redesigned the site. It looks great, if you don't mind my saying so, and we'd love to get your feedback on it. So take some time, look around, tell us what you like. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Ivry. Thank you so much for joining us. Please join us again next time.